This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Dave Jackson coming up in hour two, former NHL uh, NHL official. Sorry, first day with the new tongue. Former NHL official, uh, now working with uh, ESPN. Uh, he'll be aboard to talk about the nature of officiating around this time of year and specifically what happens next week. Uh, we have the random player of the day returning, by the way, at the top of the hour. In the meantime, we've been talking a lot about goaltenders on ATOs. We'll see another one tonight as the Maple Leafs face off against the New York Rangers, one of 15 games on the go around the NHL. And we've been talking plenty about e-bugs and the e-bug phenomenon. So why not talk to someone who used to serve in that capacity? Uh, his name is Tyler Stewart. He is a former St. Louis Blues e-bug, and he joins me now. Tyler, how are you today? I'm doing great, Jeff. How are you doing? Uh, I am doing well. There's a um, there, there's a few things that I want to get into here with you, um, but first, uh, someone just tweeted in this one. Uh, do, 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 from there is a dog submits when Andy Warhol talked about us all getting 15 minutes of fame. He meant e-bug. When you first became an e-bug, like how did that process happen? Someone from the Blues reached out to you. Did you make yourself available? What's your origin story as an e-bug with the Blues? Yeah, so my origin story, it started back in the last lockout. And I started skating with the guys because Yaroslav Halak went over to Germany. So it was just me and Brian Elliott every day. And my former coach, um, and God rest his soul, Todd Ewan, who used to play for the Blues, he was my college coach, and he asked me if I wanted to go skate with the guys. I said, sure, I'd love to. And then from there on, I, I pretty much skated the entire lockout and made connections. And at the time, uh, Sean Farrell, who used to be the Blues video coach, was one of the guys out there. And I kind of just kept in touch with Sean. And from every year on after that, he had me come out to the prospect camps, and I did all those. And I did the summer skates with Ben Bishop and Mike McKenna. And then from there, uh, yeah, whenever the rule, I guess, you know, they put it like the actual rule, and I got a call from Ryan Miller, the Blues assistant GM, and he asked me, hey, do you want to do this emergency backup goalie thing? I thought, I'm like, is this a prank? Like, what, what does this even mean? And he started telling me about, <laughs> you know, how teams felt it was unfair that the Blues had Marty Brodeur at the time, who was their assistant GM. You know, it was unfair that he yeah. was the Blues assistant GM, and he could come down. He's a Hall of Famer, probably the best goalie ever and, you know, hop in the game. So I guess the league put in a rule to have, you know, more of a uniform type thing. That's, uh, that's awesome. So w- what's the deal then? Like, so you're, you you go to every game just expecting not to play, but maybe you might. So you're, you have your pads and you're, you're ready to rock. Yeah. So the, the blues, you know, they offered me, I could keep my pads down there, but I still play uh, the beer leagues every, you know, every week and I skate and whatnot. And, you know, I, I decided to always have mine in the car. So luckily with the Blues, with their way their arena set up, the parking garage is literally connected to the arena. And I would park right there, pretty much on the roof of the parking garage, which is right by my seats. I always, I sit up in the nosebleeds in the first row in the top, and my section is right there. And I would, you know, if I got a call, if I saw, you know, Jake Allen at the time or Benner or whoever it was would go down for an injury, I would I would just get on the phone and grab my gear, run downstairs, and get dressed. It was uh it was yeah it was it was it's pretty crazy it happened probably two or three times where i got dressed but not not got in the game and then obviously you know back in 2017 I, the blues were lucky enough to let me do a warm up with the with the guys and the boys loved it it was it was really cool and you know everyone treated me great with it so what is i think a lot of us have and perhaps it's it's the wrong impression 
um, about how intense a, uh, a locker room is. Like, we have this impression that everyone's just, like, you know, super focused and furrowed brows and all about the game and all that. When you first stepped into an NHL dressing room, what did you notice? Um, it's a lot like just your standard dressing room, like growing up and playing, everyone's making jokes, you know, guys are ribbing you. I remember the night that I did the warm up with the blues. It was, I, I just kind of tried to soak it all in. And I remember I was really panicked because my mom and dad that night, they, they didn't, we have season tickets, but that night I actually gave away their seats. And, uh, so they were panicking, trying to get tickets to come down. And I remember, I remember being on my phone in the locker room, and I wasn't trying to, like, you know, take a picture or do anything. I remember Tara Sanko actually came out to me. and like, hey, Stewie, uh, put your phone away. It's not allowed. I'm like, oh, my bad. I was just trying to, you know, tell my mom and dad, like, where the seats are and everything. And I remember just before the game, him and Vladimir Savoka having a conversation about how to pronounce scissors, and each of them couldn't say it correctly because, you know, Vlad Savoka's from the Czech Republic and Vladdy's from Russia. And then a few of the Canadian guys were, like, ribbing them. I'm like, what in the world? These guys are about to go out and play a game in about five minutes, and they're arguing about how to pronounce scissors. So it really wasn't as, like, scissors. uptight. And, yeah, scissors. Because, like, they were both going – they couldn't say it correctly. They were both calling it Caesars. And everyone's like, no, it's not like Caesar salad. It's, it's scissors. It, it was just very funny. And I remember thinking, like, man, this is about as loose as it gets, you know? I mean, these guys are just going out to play a game, and it's no big deal. So it was pretty cool, though, just seeing all that stuff behind the scenes, being a hockey nerd and all. With uh, with Tyler Stewart, former St. Louis Blues e-bugs, so give us a sense of if there is, and I'm I'm guessing that there is, um, the fraternity of e-bugs. Like, are there group chats? Is there like a, a place where you all hang out online? Uh, everybody's buddies exchanging messages, stories about their e-bug stories. How does it work with the uh, the fraternity of e-bugs? Yeah, so we actually have a big Instagram chat, and I'm still in it, being a you know former e-bug and everything, and I still you know talk to the guys in there. We all just kind of discuss, it's kind of funny. So it started uh, Justin Goldman, who he runs the Goalie Guild account. You've probably seen it online. It's a pretty big account. He does a lot yep. of you know cool things yep. with the goalie community, and he's out of Colorado. He was one of the Avalanche e-bugs. They, I know they had a few e-bugs. I'm not sure how many, but he actually invited me to it, and we have I mean we have everybody in pretty much everybody in the league in it, and uh, we all just kind of discussed you know our our own you know roles and you know what we got in certain games or you know if some guys are getting money or if some guys are getting hot dogs or just whatever it was and you know he made the chat it's pre- it's just a pretty cool way to connect and it's funny because now with all these ATOs I mean every night the chat's blowing up like oh this guy's going in that guy's going in or you know anytime something happens and I remember I'll never forget like when David Ayers went in I just remember that chat blowing up and I I had I was coming home from dinner I'm like I got to get home I got to see this I was telling my wife I'm like there's a guy he's going into Toronto to play. And she's like, oh, my gosh. And it was crazy. But it's kind of just like a big notification for e-bugs. And, yeah, we just talk about different things. It's pretty cool, though. So give us a sense of – give us the lay of the land then for e-bugs. Uh, we think that much like everything in the NHL, everything is standardized. You get, I don't know, a couple of hundred bucks. You get keep the jersey. You get your per diem, whatever it is that – like, I don't I don't know. I'm, I'm throwing darts here. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a standard rate of pay or a standard rate of what you get uh, if you get called into duty? See, and that's the thing. It varies so much around the league from what I've, you know, what I've come to like learn is, you know, I, I personally, I had like my, my, my seats comped and my parking comped. And other than that, I, I pretty much got nothing other, you know, obviously don't get me wrong. I'm not just trying to downplay it. I got to skate with the guys every once in a while, which is really isn't a part of like the actual role. Most, I know some e-bugs have never skated with their teams, you know, I, but they almost used you as like a practice goalie. But, you know, I, that was my experience in yeah. St. Louis. I know, 
from my buddy down in Nashville. You know, I know both the e-bugs down there, and, and they get like 50 bucks a game. So, you know, they can go buy, you know, you know how expensive concession stands are. You know, they, they can go buy a hot dog and pretty much a soda, and they're already maxing that out. But, you know, they get their parking. You know, I know the guy out in Anaheim, he, yeah. he was used a lot to the point where he was like their practice goalie, and he was getting paid 150 to probably like 200 bucks a game. And then he also, on top of that, he got paid like 150 per practices, got some gear and whatnot. So it kind of just varies around the league. And it, it, there really is no like uniform, like this is what you're supposed to do. And that, I think, you know, every team right. just kind of plays it by ear and it's different, you know? Okay. So let me ask you this. And I, we, I got a, I just got a DM from someone by the name of Gary Cook who says, what about the blues winning the cup? Does the e-bug get to party, go to the parade? I, I seem to recall there were some players that thought that you should have you should have received a Stanley Cup ring, not that you you know played in the games and all that, but you, that's you provided a service for the St. Louis Blues, and you should have been. I don't know if you're going to get the big one that all the big boys get, but something from the organization. A, did you get anything? And you know uh, what happened after the Blues won the Cup? Yeah, so after the Blues won the Cup, I a lot of the players they were so good to me, especially Alex Petrangelo, and he's still a good buddy of mine like we skate when he, he still lives here in the off season and and he he you know he was really good about including me he brought me to like the team party afterwards and that was really cool I got a bunch of cool pictures with the cop you know invited me to his private cup party and stuff and a few of the guys just the next summer just ribbing me a little bit like asking me if I got a ring and I, I never got a ring I was a little bummed by it just because you know I know there's so many different variations of it and it was actually the year that my daughter was born and I kind of just wanted to have one just as like almost mm. like a token so, you know, in 10, 15 years, I could be like, oh, here, you know, this is what, you know, that happened the year you were born and your dad used to do this. And yeah, it, it was a little sucky, I guess, but it, it is what it is. You know, like I said, I got, I'm, you know, I, I didn't play in any games. Obviously, I just, you know, practiced and did all that stuff. But, you know, it was like obviously being a lifelong Blues fan. I mean, 2019, it was, it was like a miracle, basically, it felt like. It felt like fantasy camp, right? Oh, yeah. It was awesome. It was it, like the team being in dead last in January. I never forget skating with Pat Maroon at a, he was healthy scratch and he's just like, I don't know what to do. And he was even trying out the magic Ryan O'Reilly curve with a little lip on the end of it. And I'm like, cause I noticed, I'm like, why are you no. trying that curve out Pat? Like, and he's like, I'm just trying anything right now. I need to put the puck in the net. I'm like, oh, okay. And I mean, it was just, it was crazy times <laughs> in January. I mean, and then they go to that bar in Philadelphia and they, 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 they have a good time and glory is invented. And all of a sudden, you know, the rest is history. Jordan Bennington comes up, and it, it was crazy. It was yeah. once-in-a-lifetime type thing. Uh, I, I am curious, too. I think a lot of people would be. So, on the one hand, wow, cool. I get to skate with an NHL team. This is awesome. I get to go to practice. I get to do all these things. Um, but being a goaltender can be kind of terrifying when guys fire the puck as hard as NHLers do. Whose shot scared you? Be honest. Um. You want to know, it's kind of crazy because people will probably like be like, what in the world? But Clem Costin, and I love Clem Costin. He's a super nice guy, and he plays in the edge. I'm not going to knock his skills. He is an absolute beast. But I always felt like when he was shooting, it was, so, it was such a violent wrist shot, and I always don't know if he knew where it was going, and I'm not the tallest guy, so I was kind of like a little bit above the crossbar, <laughs> and I'm like, just please don't hit me in the head. Please don't hit me in the head. We're like Tarasenko. Everyone's always like, oh, it's got to be Tarasenko. I'm like, no, because Vladdy, like, he just yeah. a corner, like, you know, any anywhere he wanted on the he would tell me something like, "Where do you want me to shoot?" I'm like, "Oh, like, go here," and then he'd bar down. You know, what I mean, it, it was it was crazy. And you know, Pareko's obviously another one that shoots very hard. Um, I got to skate with the Flames one time, luckily, 
And a few of their guys, I mean, could really bring it. I think it was Zadorov. He had a bomb. And I, it, it, that was, you know, yeah. some, just different things like that that I remember where certain guys just had absolute rockets that I didn't expect. David Backus had a really heavy shot. Maybe not, like, the greatest, like, sniper, but very heavy. But, yeah, it was. It, those are the mm-hmm. kind of guys I remember. Did you, um, when you became an e-bug and started playing with uh, and skating with NHLers, did you change any of your equipment at all? And specifically, I want to ask you about your um, about your mask, uh, mask helmet combinations. Oh. Someone when uh, when someone found out you were coming on, someone that you know uh, texted me and said you have to ask Stewie about his mask. It's like <laughs> Tim Thomas era style, the whole deal. Like, did you first of all did you have to change your equipment and what's the deal with your mask? Because one of your buddies uh, ratted you out. Yeah, so Cam Jansen gives me so much grief back in St. Louis about my mask. He calls it a Mylock mask, like a street hockey mask. I'm like, well, I don't care what you think. I'm like, I, I love to be able to, I love the vision of it. So there's no like chin part, right? You can see down at your ankles and normal yeah. goalie mask. You couldn't yeah. And I was always a big fan of Chris Osgood growing up. And the closest thing I could get to an Osgood helmet that was legally, you, yeah, you were able to use at the youth level and like, you know, midget, like whatever, it was the Tim Thomas mask. And I'm a huge fan of Thomas, like old school goalie battles. You know, just every throws everything yeah. you know at at the puck pretty much, and yep. I love Timmy Thomas. And I when I when I was able to get that mask, I was like, this is awesome. But then like the throat guard, which is you know it's an old school throat guard, it lays so perfectly flat on my neck. I had to get that type of throat guard, and I had to go on eBay to actually find one. That's how hard it was to find an old iTech uh, throat guard. But yeah, the mask, the mask uh, definitely is old school. And uh, to answer your other question about my gear, actually the night I did the warm up. I remember uh, they were just making sure I didn't have any certain, like, logos that weren't allowed to be used in the NHL at the time because, you know, they, they ah. have all, I guess, their sponsors that they can't use. They, I remember they checked all my gear, yeah. and as time went on when I practiced them, that was my main concern. I was, I was like, listen, I just don't want to break a finger, break a hand, you know, break a collarbone, you know. So the guy at the time, Joel Farnsworth, the Blues Club manager, he really doctored up my gear. I mean, padding and whatnot and made it so I at least felt very comfortable that I wasn't going to break anything out there. <laughs> How many times did you get hit in the head? Um, actually, you know what's crazy? People probably think that happened a lot. I can literally probably count on one hand how many times, and I'll never forget the one guy that thought, and I'm, it was Scott Nickel. It was the first time. I, it was one of the first few times I ever skated with the Blues, and he hit me in the head, and, and he felt so bad about it. And I'm like, it, I'm like, Scott, I'm like, it's okay. I'm like, it, it happens. Like, it happens to me every day. He's like, I know, but this doesn't happen out here. I'm like, okay, I understand. And then. One of my buddies is actually skating with us. He actually went down to the other end and hit Brian Elliott right in the head. And Brian Elliott took his stick and just smashed it over the crossbar and said some choice words. And I'm like, oh, so I guess these guys don't get hit in the head as often as I do at my practices. Yeah, beer league warm-up's a little bit different than NHL warm-up. There's no, uh, there's yeah. no head hunting. Now, here's what I'm curious. The last question about getting, uh, getting hit in the head, Tyler. Um, I've been told that NHLers shoot the puck so hard that when it hits a goalie in the mask, they can actually smell rubber burning. Did you ever get that sensation? Oh yeah, a million times. Like even even in like my beer leagues, the guys that shoot like you know eighty five, eighty miles. Like there's a lot of good, former good you know St. Louis guys around here kicking around still. And I mean, when you get hit in the head, yeah, yeah. It, you can smell the rubber. It's it's not. It's not the most, and it doesn't wild. feel great, obviously, either. It's not the most pleasant feeling. Yeah, it's, it's pretty <laughs> wild, some of the shots I've taken. 
Being able to smell the puck, that is, uh, that's a different experience. Um, listen, I feel like we believe scratch the service of e-bugs, but there's a whole lot there. Um, Tyler, thanks so much uh, for stopping by. For stopping by, enjoy your uh, your e-bug uh, Instagram group chat um, because there's another one coming. <laughs> Samuel Richard tonight, ATO goaltender for the Maple Leafs as they face off against the uh, New York Rangers. So your uh, your group chat will be on fire tonight. Oh, yeah, I'm sure everybody will be cheering on, not hoping for an injury, but hoping for some sort of, you know, way for him to get in. That's usually how it goes in that chat. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be watching. Uh, Tyler, you're the best. Thanks so much for this, pal. No problem. Have a good day. There he is, the great Tyler Stewart, former e-bug for the St. Louis Blues. That was awesome. (laughs) That was a lot of fun. Uh, E-bug talk here. Why not, right? Two days left in the season. Um, Tyler's a great guy, as you can tell, and still keep in touch with those St. Louis Blues, most notably Alex Petrangelo, who, by the way, one of the things, you know, bad on me, we've kind of slept on, Alex Petrangelo's had an outstanding season with Vegas. Um, I didn't give that enough concert this, uh, this season. Bad on me. Hour two is on the horizon. Random player of the day. Some mailbag questions, not necessarily our mailbag. And Dave Jackson, ESPN officiating analyst. Hour two's coming. Covering the Raptors in depth like no one else. The Raptors show with Will Lou. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. All right, welcome back to the program. I want to thank Tyler Stewart for stopping by. That was awesome. A little e-bug talk with former St. Louis Blues e-bug Tyler Stewart. Uh, 15 games on the go around the NHL this evening. Some seeding ramifications contained therein uh, for three of the four divisions. Um, enjoy the games tonight. Uh, Pittsburgh Penguins finishing up tonight against the Columbus Blue Jackets. And as we talked about with Elliot in the opening segment, Fenway Sports is not an organization that drags its heels on decisions there will probably be a decision made by Fenway. I don't know if I should say quickly after the game against the Blue Jackets, but expect some type of decision quickly from the uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins. Okay, Matt Marchese, how are you today? I'm good. That was a lot of fun. That was that was excellent with Tyler. <sighs> He's great, eh? Just tell this thing about that. Like, there's um, like there's a there's a a large part of the uh, of the population of the hockey population, namely players, um, that don't like the e-bug phenomenon. And the NHL is a uh, it should be an honor to play in the National Hockey League, top league in the uh, uh, top league in the world. Like, I I don't know the solution to get around um, how you use a third goaltender other than you go back to the, hey, here comes Jerry Tapazzini, who I think would have been the last position player to go in net. Like, outside of, you know, having someone pull a defenseman and put pads on them and throw them in there, I, I don't really know what the solution can be other than, you know, uh, allowing teams to carry a third goaltender. But then if you are that third goaltender, like a legitimate third goaltender, like an NHL caliber third goaltender, you're going to spend your career or spend a season as an e-bug, maybe getting to back up a game, like not a chance. So I really don't know the, uh, the way around this one. Um, I think there are other people that have, I think closer to a more legitimate issue with the e-bug phenomenon in that we're fine allowing e-bugs to go in there as an emergency, 
which would make Lester Patrick probably the world's most famous e-bug ever. Um, but if it's just, hey, it's the last minute of the game, let's put Jed Alexander in to give him a fantasy camp for a minute. I know for a lot of players, that burns. That burns and maybe devalues the league or the position or whatever. Fans love it. Um, broadcasters love it because it's a wonderful story. But from the player's point of view, and Mike McKenna wrote about this most recently at Daily Faceoff in a really, really good piece, um, it does burn and it does sting for those for those guys who feel you have to earn your way to the NHL and I think they have a legitimate gripe there. If it's an emergency, legit, no problem. Guys got to go in when it's Jed Alexander and throw him in for the last minute or Matt Berlin and let's give him a fantasy camp here. I don't know. I think a lot of people feel that that one sits a little bit wrong. But Stewie was great. I thought Tyler Stewart was telling some great. I could have gone on for like an hour with Tyler Stewart about St. Louis Blues stories and the run to the cup. And I don't know. I kind of feel like you should get something from the Blues for that Stanley Cup victory, no? Like, I don't know that you get the 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 big ring, you know, the one that, you know, that Ryan O'Reilly would have gotten or Vlad Tarasenko or Alex Petrangelo, those those beasts that you don't even really wear unless you're going to some special St. Louis Blues occasion. You just stick in a safe somewhere. But something. You know how teams will have, like, the ring for the main people and the main players, and then as you sort of go lower down the food chain, the rings get a little bit smaller. But still, it's symbolic of, you know, thanks for helping us out as we uh, as, as we won the Stanley Cup. Ah, maybe something would be nice, right? Maybe one of I the smallest so. rings. I don't know. Something. I'm something. Yeah. I, I would know. agree Who with am that. I? Anyway, how you doing, Maddie? I'm good. I'm good. We have got lots to talk about here. Yeah, you want to do player of the uh, random player? Yeah, let's do that one first. So our random player of the day was submitted by Patrick, no given last name. Um, and this is a hockey lifer. He was a player. He was a coach. He was a broadcaster. And he had some of the best suits that you've ever seen uh, when he wore them in the broadcast. Booth. And that would be <laughs> Terry Crisp. Love him. Uh, from Perry Sound. Uh, any other famous hockey players coming from Perry Sound, to your, uh, to your knowledge? Uh, can't Matt think Mark, of one. Marchese? Can't uh, think of any, one. Uh, no, I can't think of one either. Uh, ten seasons in the NHL. Um, signed with the Boston Bruins. Did I mention he was from Perry Sound? Signed by the Boston Bruins, and then in 1967 expansion, when six became 12, uh, was claimed by the St. Louis Blues. And then when the New York Islanders came into existence, he was claimed by the New York Islanders. So one season with the Blues, or one season with the um, uh, the Bruins, one season, or a couple of seasons with the Blues in the expansion. And then New York Islanders expansion drafted by the New York Islanders. And then very famously, very famously, one of the great stories of, uh, of Bill Torrey, general manager of the Islanders, 1973, Dennis Potvin is poised to be the first overall draft pick, the draft, the class of that draft. Um, this was a during the era of the rivalry between the WHA and the NHL. I think it was Edmonton. I want to say, Maddie, you can correct me if I'm wrong here. If you get to the Google machine, I think it was the, I think it was Edmonton that drafted him in the WHA. I could be wrong. Um, but anyway, so there was always the the threat that he may chase every last nickel and go to the WHA, who were competing against contracts in the NHL. So in order to ensure ensure that Potvin, uh, if he was drafted by the Islanders, stayed with the Islanders, uh, the Islanders traded Terry Crisp to the Philadelphia Flyers in exchange for Jean Potvin, who was Dennis Potvin's older brother, 
or as Jean Potvin referred to himself amongst teammates as the bait. He said, hi, I'm Jean Potvin, the bait, to get uh, Dennis or Denny in the New York Islanders mix. Um, He won two Stanley Cups with the Philadelphia Flyers as a checking center, one of the best two-way players uh, of his era, certainly on the Philadelphia Flyers team. And Fred Shiro loved him. Um, He actually became an assistant coach uh, with the Philadelphia Flyers. More on that in a couple of moments. Uh, 1979 went to the Sioux Greyhounds after working as an assistant coach with Fred Shiro. Uh, He coached, amongst other players, Paul Coffey, Ron Francis, John Van Beesbrook, Rick Tockett, um, Jeff Bukaboom, Rob Zettler, Bob Proberts. Um, Became the very first Tampa Bay Lightning coach as well. Uh, coached the Calgary Flames to a Stanley Cup win in 1989. Uh, he played, this is an interesting stat, he played in six game sevens and never lost one. You'd figure like somewhere along the line you'd lose like one game seven. Terry Chris played in six game sevens and never lost one. But here's my favorite Terry Crisp story. So Terry Crisp when he was with the Philadelphia Flyers, was sent down to AHL Springfield, okay? But wasn't sent down as a player. He was sent down to coach. So John Hanna, the coach of Springfield, was in a horrible car accident, and what the Philadelphia Flyers did was they sent Terry Crisp, who I think at this point everyone knew was going to be a coach one day in the NHL, sent him down to the American League, Springfield, to coach. Have you ever heard of a player sent down to the American League, not to play, but to coach? Ladies and gentlemen, that is our random player of the day, Terry Crisp. Anything else about Crispy? And and by the way, just legend in Nashville, we should point out as well, and not exactly a surprise that as Nashville joined the NHL, because let's not forget, too, this is, you know, virgin hockey territory, folks. This is all new, and they need people to, you know, grow the game, explain the game, build the game there. That Nashville, we're very blessed to have a few very special people to do that. Um, great teachers. Terry Crisp was one of them. The great Pete Weber um, is another. Anyway, there we go. Terry Crisp, random player of the day from Perry Sound. I can't think of any other famous players from Perry Sound. Not one. Uh, so here, here's one, uh, in 1961, he led the Western Ontario, Western junior B hockey league in scoring. Do you know who he beat out? The Western junior B league. Yeah. I wasn't expecting this. How about that? Hang on. Derek Sanderson. Right, right. Organization. Not the right player. Rick Middleton? No. One of the greatest goal scorers ever, Jeffrey. One of the greatest goal scorers ever from that vintage. I don't know. Who is it? It's an Ontario guy. Esposito. Oh, Western. Okay. Uh, I should have got that because he's from Sault Ste. Marie. Mm -hmm. I should have got that one. Very good. Very good. Uh, the oh, other thing is nice. Terry Crisp almost quit hockey to become a teacher. Hmm. When was that? 
Uh, that was right around the time that he was playing Junior B. It sounds like, and he was a little homesick, and then oh, so this he is was e- convinced even before the uh, the real career started. It sounds like yeah, before he signed with the uh, with the Bruins. That was at 17 years Good old. One. He thought about, uh, you know, maybe I, maybe this isn't for me. Maybe I'm a little too homesick. Thank God he didn't. <laughs> no kidding. Um, that's good. That's good. Uh, anything else on Crispy? Uh, not, not anything else. He was just, he's fantastic. So that's all I have to say. Okay. I want to, before we go on, I always like doing these follow-ups. So a couple of days ago, you presented Kevin Hatcher as mm-hmm. a random player of the day. And I referenced his older brother mark who was a giant six foot was he six foot seven seven yeah 240 pounds like yeah like as much as we think of like kevin hatcher and darian hatcher as just monsters um the oldest brother mark was the giant of all of them and john zaorski sent me this direct message on twitter um after hearing it mark hatcher was huge just started listening to your podcast played pickup games at a local tennis court flooded with Mark and Kevin. How cool would that have been? How cool would that have been a flooded tennis court? Was amazed the first show I listened to. You bring up Mark Hatcher. I always reference him as the hatch as the Hatcher nobody knows of. Keep up the great work. And also, there is one more here that I want to get to. Okay, this is so cool. Um, this is when... A couple of days ago, we had Kelly Rudy. It was Monday we had Kelly on, I believe. And this week or last Kelly week, yeah. referenced the we had Kelly referenced the Billings Bighorns of the yeah. Western League, who he would have played against when he played with the Medicine Hat Tigers. Uh, he says, "Hey Jeff, big fan, love your passion for junior hockey. Thank you." This is Jordan McTaggart. Okay, I want to say thank you for bringing my dad's name up every so often on your podcast. That would be Jim McTaggart. Tough. It's really cool to hear old stories about him, and I know he loves it. Uh, again, thank you, and love listening to the pod. Jordan, by the way, is the co-head coach in uh, Wet Natchee, the uh, 16U and 18U Wet Natchee Wild mm-hmm. uh, development teams. Wet Natchee plays in the in the, in the BCHL. Um, the hockey director and other co-head coach is Troy Mick. Does that name ring a bell for you? That guy was a legend in the Western League. Troy Mick scored, like, if you look him up on DB, it's like 140 points every year. Legendary Western Hockey League scorer. But, um, you know, it's interesting. When I talk about that era of the Western Hockey League, uh, first of all, high skill, certainly. Great goaltenders. Um, interesting goaltenders. And one day we'll do the uh, the Bart Hunter story. Um uh, park that if you can write that down or let me let me do something on bart hunter somewhere down the road um but also there's a really tough era and jim mctaggart was one of the toughest there and um only played a couple of years with the washington capitals uh, wasn't drafted but was signed and when he played in the old chl the central league he had a couple of doozies with george mcphee who as you know uh, i've always maintained pound for pound was one of, if not maybe the toughest player in the game, period. He was not anywhere close to being six foot anything. We all know George McPhee, you know, former GM of the Washington Capitals, uh, now with the Vegas Golden Knights. Um, George was pound for pound, one of the toughest of all time. Some might even say the toughest pound for pound. Um, and he had two doozies with uh, with Jim McTaggart. So I always appreciate getting the notes like that. Um, follow-ups on the random player of the day and, uh, if you're the son, daughter, sibling of any sorts, cousin, any type of family relation with anyone that we mentioned on the random player, uh, it seems to be a 
relatively popular segment and people pop out of the woodwork when you mentioned old hockey players names and that's the wonderful thing about hockey it's everywhere so always appreciate that feedback okay what's going on next mr producer man Okay, so let's do the Hall of Ridiculous, and I want let let me start because this one might this one's gonna okay. have a little roundabout thing here. So when okay, you talk set about it, set it up like the, yeah. the, hang on, frame this for everybody. Frame this. Okay, here. so we talked about it on the show yesterday uh, the Jordan shoes they sold for two point two million. You put out the question, what would you pay a ridiculous yep. amount of money for? Which turned into <sighs> what would you put in the hockey Hall of Weird or Strange or Ridiculous or whatever. So my first yeah. instinct was, because this was brought up, uh, it was sent to us, uh, DC fan in Denver, I think it was, um, or Capitals fan okay. in Denver, uh, father of prudence. And they said that it was a high stick. So a hockey stick caused modern aviation. Wilbur Wright gets high sticked, whatever. So my thing was the stick that high sticked yeah. Wilbur Wright is what I would pay <laughs> a lot of money for. To yes. which yes. I had to look up the name, yeah. and I said, oh, what was that guy's name again? What this was his name? Great. I look it up. Oliver Crook Haw. I titled the podcast what that day. What can you day. tell us about him? <laughs> yes. I titled the podcast that day, <laughs> Never Forget About Oliver Crook Haw. I also want to point out that this was a, a an absolute oh. coincidence that both of us got a tweet yep. yesterday from District 5 Hockey who was boarding a plane, and it says, thank you, Oliver Crook Haw. And he cc both of us. That's Chris Kober. Boy, oh yep. boy, was I intrigued when I found out who Oliver Crook Haw was. <laughs> He was yeah. he was the neighborhood bully. He was three years younger than Wilbur Wright, the neighborhood bully, oh, yeah. who turned out to be one of the most notorious serial killers in Ohio's history. Yep. He was a doctor. Yep. He was married at least nine times. Uh, his course of action later suggest, suggests that the high stick was premeditated. Uh, he was also obsessed with... With doc with Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, he actually began experimenting on himself uh, to prove that two beings can exist in one body. He was admitted to mental institutions twice. <laughs> he was a yeah. he people died on his table during experiments and all that stuff. So he was actually put to death yeah. via electric chair. So mm. this guy was a nut, by the way. Um, so I had to get that out there because when I typed his name and I went, there's no way. And then I looked at it and went, oh, my God, we almost celebrated a serial killer on this show. We uh, we really almost did. And that stick probably does belong somewhere in jail. But who knows? These are all things that get these are all things in law. Well, not that, no, it's not the stick. <laughs> you can't put the stick on trial. Put the stick in the Hall of Fame somewhere. This is what this is the stick that helped you know launch modern aviation. But uh, that's that's a good one. But everyone sort of captured the spirit of this, Reg. Um, like, there's a lot of like what I got yesterday was, uh, well, the the Mike Milbury shoe was one. Yep. Uh, I had a I lot of a lot people of suggesting luck. Peter Puck. Uh, I would imagine Peter Puck's already in the Hockey Hall of Fame. No, like, there's got to be so. some type of area for Peter Puck, considering that was such a great, such a great uh, feature that helped uh, that helped you know teach uh, specifically younger people like myself um the rules of hockey i would have to think that that's in there someone submitted uh harvey the hound's tongue which was oh, yeah. famously pulled out by craig mctavish high mac t of famous iconic moments 
in that uh, Edmonton-Calgary rivalry. But uh, what else came in for that one? What would you put in the Hall of Strange or NHL Hall of Ridiculous? Okay, do you want do you want some of the ones that I came up with, or you want the ones first from our listeners? Because you and I both have lists. Your choice. Your okay, choice. I'll give you the, I'll choice. Give you the listeners because there's some really good ones. Um, this one from Ted Starkey, the trash can the Capitals paraded around after snapping their 37-game road losing streak in Oakland in 1975. Oh, yes. Brilliant. Yes, that is that is a good one. But that, I, I would imagine, would have been left behind. But the thing is, it's not just that they paraded out with it. They all signed their name on it. So this, yeah. this, is, this is the story of the um, of the Washington Capitals, the, the worst team of all time, 1974, um, could barely win at home, couldn't win on the road. They finally beat the Oakland Seals on the road. Afterwards, the team grabs the uh, the metal trash can in the uh, in the dressing room and go out to parade it around the ice like they had just won the Stanley Cup. But the nice touch, and this is where, oh, you'd love to see it so many years later, is they all signed it like they had just gotten their name engraved on the Stanley Cup. But it was a garbage can, and they wrote all their names on it and then went and skated around with the rest of the futile, awful Washington Capitals team. Really, really tough one there. Yeah, that one that was not great. Um, it's, uh, here's one from... Uh, but that Jeff belongs Cap- in there. But that be- you're yeah. right. That belongs in there. That, that sure. trash can belongs in on the Hall uh, of Ridiculous. This one from Jeff Cowley, Scott Mellenby's stick that he used to kill the rat in the Panthers dressing room. That's got to be somewhere, don't you think? Maybe the Florida Panthers Hall of Fame? Do they have a Hall of Fame? I'm assuming. Mm, okay, so I can't say too much about this. I'm going to follow up. Remind me to remind me after the show to follow up on this. And I can't say too much. So when we went to the All-Star game, uh, I got to be really careful about this. Amel and I No, 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 no. Amel and I went as soon as we landed. Amel Delich, who's our uh, 32 Thoughts podcast producer. Amel and I along with a couple of shooters went somewhere which might be considered a Florida Panthers Hall of Fame. It's a place where there is a lot of items. Got to be careful. There are a lot of items You're really treading that you here. would consider, I know, that you would consider putting in a Florida Panthers Hall of Fame. Okay. The reason I don't want to say what it is is because Amel's putting together a feature Oh, on this that place one. Yeah, that we yeah, went yeah, to. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay? You know, yeah. I told you about this, right? Okay, so yeah. I can't say too much because I don't want to spoil it for Amel. But let's just say if it's going to be anywhere, I'm guessing it might be at this place. But more on that when that feature comes out, hopefully these check, playoffs. Check back in tomorrow on the show to see if Jeff reveals any more secrets about the Florida <laughs> Panthers Hall of Fame. That's um, so bad. I just wasted 90 seconds of people's time. <laughs> It's okay. It's okay. Uh, I think it's gr- I think it's great theater for us, Jeff. Somebody's gonna listen to our go. I wonder if he's gonna say. Oh yeah. Um, okay, yeah, this one from yeah. Nick Holzmacher, John Spanos purchase letter of intent or five thousand dollar wire confirmation. Oh. oh wow, wow. It's, you know, this used to be the old saying about the NHL. There used to be the old saying about the National Hockey League was that it's the only professional sports league where the owners go to prison more than the players. And for the longest time, <laughs> for the longest time, that's kind of always been true. 
So and I don't I, want to point out exactly what just happened a couple of weeks ago with a certain <laughs> someone on a southern United States team. Oops. But it continues to this day. <laughs> um. So I have an That's update good. on Scott Mellonby's stick. I just got a note. That quickly? Yes. So uh, my buddy Frank, wow. who I've known for years, he's also known as Cheech. He loves this show, listens all the time, and he's going to get goosebumps that he hey, got Cheech. mentioned. But he's a big, he's a big uh, Florida Panthers guy. Used to go to games all the time. He says he's pretty sure that Mellonby's stick is on display at the arena. And he's seen it. He's seen it on the concourse ah. level. It's there with Van Beesbrook stuff too. You know, one of my favorite shots from that whole episode was um, Patrick Wall, the Colorado Avalanche. There's a gorgeous picture. It's a beautiful picture. Um, playoffs. I want to say this was. I think it would have been probably would have been Game Three. Um, whenever the Florida Panthers would score a goal during that playoff run, they would have, you know, the, 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 the rats that they would throw on the ice, plastic rats. And what would happen is the visiting goalie would back up and, and hide in the net. And so the Avalanche surrendered one. I can't remember which goal it was. It's a great shot. You'll probably find it online. There's a great shot of Patrick Waugh not hiding in the net, but out like at yes. the top of his crease as he's mm-hmm. being showered by rats. Yeah. Just letting that burn. And, and if you know anything about Patrick Waugh, like that fire burned and burned and burned. And it is so Patrick Waugh that he wouldn't go and hide in the net while the rats were coming down. He'd just stand there and take it. It's I, I love the picture. It's one of my favorite. Like I still like the Natsurovsky 51 shot. Like that to me is still the best hockey picture ever. But I really love that. I love that Patrick Waugh picture. With all the rats around him. That's a yeah, great it's a, shot. It's a really good one. Okay, here's another one from uh, from a, a listener. Okay. This is from Matt Bergen. <laughs> this is so good. Fedor Fedorov's receipt from his infamous night at Earl's in Winnipeg with Kevin Biesa. <laughs> <laughs> and for those who don't know, that was the night that Kevin Biesa took Fedor Fedorov outside and beat him up, which ended up getting him a call to the big club well, in Vancouver. So he, like, flicked a straw or something like that, and Fedorov got all pissed about it and said, do you want to step outside? And Kevin said, sure. Uh, Bieksa, <laughs> Grimsby, Ontario, Bowling Green, also where George McPhee uh, went as well. Did I mention that George McPhee was probably pound for pound the toughest player ever in the NHL? You did. Um, yeah, took him out. took him outside, flash KO'd him, Came back inside, and Dallas Aikens, who's now the head coach of the Anaheim Ducks, um, was there. He was the captain of the team, I believe, at that time. And Bieksa, Bieksa told me this. He said, I came back in and said, I, I, I think I'm, I'm going to get fired. Like, I think I'm going to get cut. I just, like, beat up Fedor Fedorov. And Dallas Aikens started laughing and said... You don't know who our boss is. You obviously don't know anything about Brian Burke. Not only are you not getting cut, you're probably getting a contract. And he did. Yeah. His the beginning sure, of the Kevin sure Bieksa origin story in the NHL. Worked out great. Yeah. Okay, so I'll give you I'll give you some now the some of these That's came good. up as well. Um I had this one on my list too. Um, Bobby Hall's wig that Dave Hansen threw into the crowd in a WHA game. Oh yeah. 
Yeah. That's a no-brainer. Uh, Bobby started wearing the wig, and this is, he never wore a helmet. I think he came out the next period with a helmet on. <laughs> and Dave Hansen. That, so that's the story in the WHA, right? And, you know, they go to the lockup to fight, and Hansen, I think was left or his right, goes to, to lock up, and Hull moves, and he grabs the rug. Like, he grabs the squirrel, pulls it right off his hair, and he's right off his head, and he's saying they're holding this thing, and then I guess Hall gets in tight, and uh, the fight's over, and Hansen... Uh, has said to me and has said to other people that he went up, you know, the next period. And I think Hall came out for the first time in his career with a helmet um, for the next period. And Hanson went up to him and said, hey, Mr. Hall, I, I apologize. And Bobby was like, ah, don't worry about it, kid. I needed a new one anyway. But the story being that he came out with the helmet the first time. That's, that's a good, good one. The, uh, the Brett Hall toupee, uh, the Bobby Hall yeah. toupee. That's a good one. That's a good one. Okay. Uh, I, here's a couple others that I threw in there. Jim Playfair suit and tie from his meltdown as the Abbotsford head coach. <laughs> How many sticks did he throw? Oh, he like just like melted down like Hulk Hogan yeah. style, like tearing off his shirt and the tie yeah. was coming off. And it was like, you thought that if, if it was at a bar, he's going to be like the one man conga line. Yeah. yeah. That was a tough one to watch. That was that was uh, a weird one to watch. Watching him gear down on the bench, just going <laughs> banana sandwich over a bad call. <laughs> um, speaking of bad call, uh, how about the bench from uh, that Robbie Fatorik threw on the ice in two thousand uh, as coach of the wow. Yeah, or uh, the Tommy Webster stick. Speaking yeah. of LA coaches that got uh, that got chucked onto the ice as well, those are all good that belong in the uh, the uh, the hockey hall of ridiculous and the hockey hall of strange. I suppose those are good ones. Someone's yeah. Trevor Connors. This is a good one too. Uh, Willie Mitchell's double length stick that he used to troll Mike <laughs> Keenan in warm up after Keenan tried to call him out for using an illegal stick in an earlier yeah. game. All these things must exist somewhere. That would be a great one to have in the Hockey Hall of Strange. I I saw one. Uh, where is it here? I'll I'll find I'll find out who sent it. But somebody sent in Carrie Fraser's whistle from Game Six, to which someone uh, Craig Needles commented on and said, "Never been used." <laughs> oh, still in his original packaging. <laughs> yeah, Fox Forty. There you go. Shout out Fox Forty. Um, Shout out Fox Forty. Yeah. Uh, here here's another one. Uh, the dollar that was traded for Chris Draper. Yes, the dollar that was traded for Chris Draper. We don't know if it was a Canadian dollar or American dollar, right? Well, it's it's the NHL, so that would be in U.S. currency, sir. Or the hotel bills that were traded for Dale DeGray in the minors. (laughs) Dale DeGray holds the distinction of being, I think, the only player who was ever traded in exchange for paying another team's hotel bills. (laughs) Dale DeGray was the compensation, now general manager of the Owen Sound Attack, former NHL defenseman, former member of the Oshawa Generals of the OHL as well. Yeah. Uh, here, I got I got here's here's one, and then we're going to take a break because um, I know you'll love this one. It has to be in there. There's no got? question about it. Eddie Shore's cape. <gasps> okay, so this is the great story. Oh, man, people listen so closely to this show. I don't think I'd ever mentioned this before except on this show. Who sent that? That's awesome. Who sent I, that? that? Was, That's great. I think I mentioned I, this in passing once. I sent it. <laughs> oh, that's you? Oh, yes. that's yours. Okay, well, good for you, Matty. Paying attention to the show you produce. You're already one up on the game. You're making every other <laughs> producer look bad. Um, so, Eddie Shore, <laughs> nobody embraced the being a villain more than Eddie Shore. And make no mistake about it, he was the most hated player in the NHL. Punctuation, period. 
and he celebrated it and loved it to the point where in visiting rinks during warm-up, he would wear a black cape. Like he was the villain that was going to twist his mustache and, you know, tie the damsel to the, uh, to the, the railroad tracks. Like he was that guy. Like he embraced being hated uh, both as a player and then later as an owner. Uh, he embraced that like no other. Now, he wasn't exactly the nicest guy in town. He wasn't exactly a friend to players. Like some of the stories, some of the stories of Eddie Shore are legendarily bad. First of all, if you were an injured player on his Springfield team, um, you didn't just wear a suit, watch the game, and eat some popcorn. No, he was paying you, so you sold the popcorn or you <laughs> swept the stands that was him and he never liked his goaltenders to go down he always liked stand-up goaltenders you know this story maddie you ever heard this one about how he encouraged uh, goaltenders to stand up this is so bad so in practice what he would do is quite literally he would tie a noose from the crossbar and put it around a goaltender's neck so if they tried to go down during practice literally they would hang themselves eddie shore ladies and gentlemen eddie shore this is back in the era where Uh, A lot of the old-timers try to remind us that there was respect in the game and there was, like, decency uh, in the game. This is I'm still waiting for this this mythical time where there was respect in the game, but it's really not on Eddie Shore's timeline. But, yes, good for you for referencing the uh, the Eddie Shore black cape. Bless you, Matt Marchese. Bless you. That's a great way to finish this one. There's more, and we should probably go through more of them tomorrow on the show as we'll carry this one over and maybe... uh, and we'll see. There's some, some great ones here. Maybe carry it in after the weekend. Uh, we're going to take a break. We're going to talk about officiating with uh, Dave Jackson, former NHL official, now ESPN rules analyst. Uh, what happens to officials around this time of season and into the playoffs as well? Dave Jackson in moments. Merrick Show continues across the Sportsnet Radio Network, simulcast on Sportsnet 360 and Sportsnet Now. Keep it here. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. One of my favorite topics, officials. And uh, officials, always a topic around this time of year heading into the playoffs. Uh, So for that, we default to one of our favorites. Dave Jackson is a former NHL official, now ESPN rules analyst, and he joins me now. Dave, how are you today? I'm great, Jeff. How are you? Uh, I'm doing very well. You know, we, we talk a lot around this time of year about players and preparation for the playoffs. And there are, you know, like a, like a, a lot of players will, I don't know, sometime maybe like January, February, who knows, sort of get everything in order around their lives because when playoffs start, um, all they need to do is just focus on hockey. So everything in the home life is all sorted out and it's focus, 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 and it's a two-month sprint, et cetera, et cetera. How do officials prep differently um, for the playoffs? Obviously, once they know that they're going to get the assignments, like how do officials prepare for it? Well, you know, it's funny you say that because, I mean, you look at a team like Boston, they've been prepping for the playoffs, you know, since Christmas, right? They, they, they know they're yeah. in. Uh, for referees, I mean, you never know you're in until the day after the season ends. Um, obviously, if you're a repeat Stanley Cup finalist, you know, you're pretty sure you're getting playoffs, but 
for a great percentage of the staff. I mean, there's 36 referees, 36 linesmen. You know, they only pick 20 of each to work the playoffs. So mm-hmm. I think your focus during the season for playoffs is just make sure you do your job every given night because playoff assignments are based on our body of work throughout the season. And, you know, you're not finding out for most guys, a lot a good chunk of guys, like they're still – there's still some doubt in their mind when they're coming in that last week of the season going, sure. you know, I wonder if, I wonder if my body of work was, was good enough this year. And they don't find out, like I said, until the day after the season ends. So it's a pretty quick turnaround to start prepping. I'm, I'm glad you got us there as quickly as you did, Dave, because that's the one thing that I always point out to people when fans will say, well, well, there's no accountability for the officials. They just make their calls and then they, they move on to the next market. And I always like, hold on a second here. Like, they're rewarded with more work. They're rewarded with uh, Stanley Cup playoff assignments. That's the accountability. To your point, what's your body of work been this season? Is it good enough to get into the postseason? Like, that's the, that's the spot where the officials are, are made accountable. Right. And that, that just, I mean, that drives me nuts when I, when I, I mean, I read that all the time. There's no accountability for officials. Couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, I'll go through real quick, but in Toronto situation room, there's a guy assigned to every single game that's played every night and he logs every call that's made and every call that's missed. And when that referee or linesman gets home after the game, flip open their laptop, their game is on there and they've got notes from the logger on everything they did right. And everything in his opinion, they did wrong. That gets forwarded to the supervisors who then, double-check them to make sure that, yeah, that call was missed, and you hear about it. Um, you get mid-season ratings. Uh, you get supervisors at half your games. It's immediate in-person debrief after the game. And then, like you said, if your body of work just doesn't support it during the season, you're missing out on huge amounts of bonus money through the playoffs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I am curious about the nature of officiating um, in in the playoffs themselves. And one thing that I've always wondered, too, um, how much, how do I phrase this? Is there a standard way to officiate um, that is that is the same for one series to another? And what I'm getting at here is every series will have a supervisor, correct? Like there'll be someone who will be in charge of, you know, supervising the officials that are, that are working. And right, and they, some and they supervisors stay with that series, want the whole seven games. And they, and they stay, yeah. So do all those supervisors have the, do they all want the each game called the exact same way? And, and I'm not just focusing on the calls here. I'm also curious about where they want the officials positioned on the ice, specifically referees, right on top of the net, away from the net, off to the corner. Yep. Like, does that differ from, from supervisor to supervisor? It shouldn't. It shouldn't. I mean, really, you go back to training camp, and I've been, you know, I was at 32 training camps and I was lucky enough to go this year for a day as, you know, representing ESPN just to get an uh, update on the new rules. And Stephen Walkham stands up there at the front of the room alongside Gary Bettman. And their message to the guys is, we've just spent two days showing you videos on every infraction. We've shown you what's a penalty. We've shown you what's not a penalty. We've shown you a bunch of hits that we don't want called penalties. You guys know what the standard is. There's a line there. We want you to be true to that standard. And if you're true to that standard, we'll support you. We don't care what time of game it is. We don't mm-hmm. care if it's game seven, it's not like a finals. If it's a penalty, you guys will be supported. If it's not a penalty, don't call it. And the supervisors are in on those meetings. And I don't think anything changes. I think what changes come playoffs is how the players play the game. 
Uh, yes, I, 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 I believe that, that the players are more intense. Everything is finisher checks and, and no shifts are, are mailed in and everything, you know, emotionally gets, gets ratcheted up. The interesting, the interesting thing about it is, and this is where officials are sort of in a, a no win situation, specifically referees. Um, the players get more intense. The game's like, this is what we love about the game. Like playoff hockey is like full stop. It's the best. Like it's, it's fantastic. Right. It is, you know, the controlled, the best controlled events or hockey playoff it's so good it's just so good we just all love it um and if you ask the players they will always say we want the officials on a 50 50 call to keep the whistle in the pocket except when something happens to them then all of a sudden the default setting is well you gotta call that like how do you like as an official how do you how do you walk that line of hold on a second here on the one hand, players keep talking about, you know, we don't want, you know, chintzy penalties, no ticky-tack stuff and all that. But then when it happens against them, it's the arms in the air and embarrass the officials and, you know, show the call again on the on the Jumbotron. How do officials navigate that scenario? Well, you know, that's, you know, that's a debate that rages all season long. I mean, it's not science, right? It's more of an art form, refereeing. And I'm glad you touched on it because you said those 50-50 calls. People say, just call the rule book black and white. That's an impossibility. It really is. Because a really, a really great guy's got a breakaway and the defenseman catches him and strips him of the puck. Half the, half the crowd's yelling for a penalty. The other half is yelling, what a great defensive play that is. Almost every call in hockey is a judgment call. Now, some are blatant. You know, a stick in the head, a blatant trip on a breakaway. But there's so many penalties yeah. that are 50-50 calls. Like the gray area calls, holds, hooks, interference. I mean... That's where experience comes in. That's where the best referees know what is and what isn't a penalty. And I think first and foremost, you go out and do a playoff game, you don't want to miss an egregious penalty because those, those hurt you. You miss an egregious penalty, you're probably not going to the next round. Um, yep. you, don't want to, you, don't, you don't want to miss a scoring chance because that's why we play the game, to score goals. Don't miss, don't miss an infraction that, that prevents a team from scoring a goal. Keep the game fair and safe. And on those 50-50 calls, if you're 100% sure, yeah. you make the call. If you're not, we don't want guys guessing. Because if you guess on a call, that's a 50-50. It could go either way. Was it a hook? Was it a hook? If you guess on that and you're wrong and the team buries a power play goal, yeah. you know, there's no, there's no, you can't defend that call. You can't say, well, I thought. No, you, you, you were wrong and it caused a goal. So if you're not 100% sure, we don't, we don't want officials guessing. You know, I look at um, uh, officials uh, in the same way that I look at, you know, in some ways, in some regards, you know, officers of peace. And I say there are some things, there are some laws that police officers probably don't love enforcing, but it's the law and you kind of have to. When you look at the rule book, are there calls that officials look at? And again, this is a wide brush question. Like it'll, it'll, it'll differ from uh, referee to referee. But is there something in the rule book that referees look at and say, I really hate calling this one, but I have to because it's my job. Like, is there one call that officials just hate making or is every penalty the same? You know, I mean, I don't think really, I mean, people say puck over the glass, but I mean, for officials, that's an easy call. It is what it is. That's easy. That's that's easy. I mean, it's not always easy. Sometimes you're wondering if you hit the glass or not, but, but it's a black and white. It's supposed to be black and white. It's not, you're not using your judgment saying, I think you meant to do it or not. It's black and white if it goes over the glass. So that's really not there. I yeah. guess maybe, 
No, I, I can't really think of any penalties where you don't want to call. Possibly, you know, a guy's helmet comes off and he's involved mm. in the play. And I think we've that's really uh, misunderstood that rule. Players don't have to immediately go to the to, like. If you're engaged, if if you're battling for the puck and your helmet comes off, the referees are going to allow you to finish that play. You don't have to just stop what you're doing and give up a scoring chance. And I don't think people understand that. And sometimes even the announcers are going, I can't believe he played with the helmet. The referee didn't call it. Well, no, the referee is going to let you complete that play, and then you got to get off the ice or put your helmet back on. And I think probably that's the only one that if the guy doesn't do it, then you call a penalty on him. You go, dude, I gave you the opportunity. You just, you just took advantage of it. How many, uh, uh, again, uh, th- this is an interesting one because I've always maintained that um, uh, players play, officials, you know, officiate, you know, fiddlers fiddle and dancers dance. Um, how many players do you think know the rule book well? I mean, because I've seen a couple of instances where, you know, a helmet comes off and the guy dashes, you know, right to the right to the bench. And it's like, well, he could have just picked up his helmet and put it back on instead stayed in the play. Instead, he took up, like, like does that. he know the we rule? We saw that in the Pittsburgh, like, Pittsburgh Rangers series last year, and they were blaming the rule. And yeah, all the guys yeah. do, all the guys just pick his helmet up. You don't have to do the chin strap up. Just put the helmet back on your head, and you're good to go. Um, <laughs> had he known that, you know, who knows? The series might have swung a different way. But uh, I think most players have a rudimentary understanding of the rules but i don't think when something out of the ordinary happens they really understand the process fair um you know one of my favorite um referee stories um mickey irons was a legendary referee now mickey was a contemporary of you know bill chadwick the big whistle the guy that came up with you know the hand Uh signals for you know slash and hook and trip and all that i'm I'm, you know all this stuff so mickey irons used to have a saying so he would before the game, he would call the officials to center ice, the two linesmen. This is the three the three official system. Call the two linesmen to center ice, and he'd hold up the puck. And he would say, gentlemen, I want you to understand something. The minute I drop this round black thing, the three of us become the only sane people in this building. Everybody else loses their mind. We're the only ones that have any sanity whatsoever. I always love that. And that speaks to, you know, mentally preparing yourself um, for the playoffs. How did, I want to go back to your career. How did, how did, like, what was your mentality in the playoffs? Like when you're, when you're refereeing a game, did you have a sense of like Mickey Irons talked about so many decades ago, the minute I drop this puck, we become the only sane people in this building. Did you carry that sense as well? Or was there another way that you got prepared for playoffs? No, for sure. I've said that for years that the officials are the only team on the ice that really have a vested interest in the integrity of, 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 of the rules because, you know, as far as players go, and I mean this, super complimentary if you're not cheating you're not trying right i mean if they weren't cheating we sure. wouldn't need referees we wouldn't need referees everybody would just you police themselves and play by the rules but you're always going to get an edge and you can never blame a player for trying to get an edge and it's how far you can push that before you cross the line and you get put in the penalty box um but for me doing a playoff game uh, I, i'll tell you was always a privilege and m- it amazed me the difference between a playoff game and a regular season game. And I'm, I'm sure you know that just from being in the building and watching it. But yeah. I came into the one referee system, and we were only 12 referees, I think, when I first came in. There was like 21 teams. And I never got to do playoffs in the one-man system because I was just last guy in, and there was nobody retiring. But I was standby, and I would, I would be down at ice level watching playoff games. 
I was part of it. I just wasn't on the ice. And I said, wow, this is a different level. And then when I finally got a playoff game, it was another level. I just couldn't believe the speed, the intensity, and how everything mattered. Like every missed call, every call you made was, was just so amazing. And it was always a privilege every spring to be given playoffs and, you know, be entrusted with maintaining the integrity of the game and, and the league. And I'd talk to myself. I'd stand at center ice during the anthem. I'd, my eyes were usually closed, and I'd be, tell, I'd be telling myself, if it's a penalty, you need to call it. If you see a penalty, you need to call it. And then I'd follow up that up, with, but don't overreact. Don't overreact, but don't miss a penalty. And I tell myself that during stoppages. I tell myself that in the dressing room between periods. And, you know, sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. <laughs> well, listen, it's the uh, the most wonderful time of the year. Well, that's a statement already co-opted by the Disney Corporation, but it, it applies here now. It's the uh, the most wonderful time of the year. Uh, the NHL's uh, regular season winding down. Playoffs are on the horizon, and, uh, and everybody brings their A game, and you always did on the ice, and you do now with ESPN, David. It's, it's always a pleasure catching up. You be well, and uh, continued success on, uh, on the Magic Eyeball. We'll be watching for you on ESPN. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate you having me on. There he is, Dave Jackson, former NHL official, now a rules analyst uh, with ESPN. It is, uh, it is interesting, and I think Dave's point is the right one. We've heard a lot of people talk about this over the last couple of seasons. I know the obvious, you know, oh, look, there it is, oh, look, there it is, is to, uh, to look at the playoffs and say, it's the officials that change. Oh, look, the whistle is away. Oh, look, they don't want to, quote-unquote, affect the game. But by not affecting the game, they're affecting the game. When you think of... This is the way I always couch, and, and Dave referenced this as well, and I, I think it's a really salient point. When you look at the nature of calls in hockey, and for those that say just call the rule book, hockey is one of those sports where if you just called the rule book, it will be 60 minutes of power plays. You could call a penalty on every single play. And when you consider that calls still have a heavy slant towards interpretation, i.e. a slash to one person is not a slash to another. A trip to me is not a trip to Matt Marchese. A hook to Matt Marchese is, you know, not a hook to to Lance Kennedy. Like, they're all different to different eyeballs. Nobody has the same brain. Nobody has the same eyes. You try to make it as consistent as possible. But to me, and maybe it's because I have the... And I do consider it a luxury, but then again, I don't get a payoff because of it. You know, I don't have a dog in the fight. I don't, I don't really care who wins and loses. I just want to see a good hockey game. Um, But maybe when it happens to your team, there's an emotional reaction. But if you can have like a sober second look at these types of things and how the game is officiated, to me, the biggest surprise out of all of it is how many calls they get correct. And part of it is when you see a great hockey game, and we're about to see some great hockey games in the playoffs, A, that's the players. But B, a part of that is the officials. I try to never lose sight of that. How they call a game is at times as important as how the game is played. Three people tried to make this show great. Unfortunately, I had other plans. Those people are Jen Rolnick, Lance Kennedy, and Matt Marchese. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanks to Elliot Friedman. Thanks to Tyler Stewart. E-Bug Convo was so much fun. And you just heard from Dave Jackson from ESPN. 
22 hours, we're back. More of the Merrick Show across the Sportsnet Radio Network. A lot of games tonight. Talk about them tomorrow as the season winds down.